Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Welcome to the Vegas Gang Podcast for May 23rd, 2011. Uh, the Vegas Gang is a roundtable discussion show for issues related to casinos in Las Vegas, Macau, and the rest of the world. This is by far the best podcast you will hear all day, guaranteed, or your money back. Um, let me go around the table and introduce the guys. We have Mr. Jeff Simpson, author of the often correctly spelled Simpson on Vegas column over on Two Way Hard Three. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Hunter. Chuck Monster, who is the head stickman and chief creek walker over at VegasTripping.com. What's happening, Chuck? <laughs> Not a moocho, buddy. Dr. Dave Schwartz, the director of UNLV's Center for Gaming Research and world-renowned star of C-SPAN 3. Hey, Dave. Hey, how you doing? Good. My name's Hunter Hilligus, and I'm going to be your tour guide for today. Um, we're excited to get going. It's been a while since our last show, as is sort of our custom. It's been about a month, but it feels like it's been a while longer. Got a couple of quick announcements. Actually, one quick announcement, which is the Vegas Internet Mafia Family Picnic, uh, which is going to be October 22nd. So for those who are wondering what this is, uh, you're probably aware that the last few years we've participated in an event called Vegas Podcast of Palooza. Um, that event is, is dead, but uh, we are reimagining it. Um, basically, I think uh, we want to take all the best stuff about it and come up with something new that's a lot of fun and that I think everybody's going to enjoy. Uh, we Chuck was nice enough to host a poll, um, and based on uh, input from the community, it sounds like October 22nd is going to be our save-the-date date. So that's a, a Saturday. Uh, and if you want to um, sort of uh, learn more, you can go to VegasInternetMafia.com. That will shoot you over to uh, a lovely... Uh, page that chuck put together i don't want to oversell it but man i'm pretty excited you know all the stuff that we've been talking about like I, I i have a new idea though that and maybe this may or may not work but i was thinking like the vegas gangbang what do you guys think <laughs> oh yeah that sounds great yeah oh. it's that that's the kind of event it's going to be it's definitely um it's a it's a bring the kids kind of thing <laughs> just kidding um we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna be announcing more about um, sort of what exactly we're gonna be including in the show. I think it's gonna be fun, so definitely stay tuned. And uh, if you can, block off that date, the twenty second of October, and um, we will see you then. All right. So, in terms of stories, uh, one of the biggest ones in the last week or so was something that we've been leading up to for a while for the past past few months, which is the clothing closing of the Sahara. Um, yeah, we uh, we finally saw them lock the doors, and uh, there's a dramatic video. Um, Chuck, you posted this video on Vegas Tripping. Uh, why don't you tell us about this short but sweet uh, little clip? Yeah, the short but sweet little clip. Let's see. Uh, when they finally were rustling everybody out of the Sahara, uh, and this is based, I wasn't there, but this is based on the thousands of accounts that uh, trickled in through the Twitter and email, news reports, whatnot. It was very much of an anticlimactic sort of thing. There was no big toast. There was no big press conference. There was no ceremonial uh, shooting of the dunes to explode it. There was no none of that stuff. Uh, they pretty much just rustled everybody out, last call, beat it, go away, 
and some annoying lady screaming, I'm the last one! I'm the last one! I'm the Sahara Being really irritating. They close the doors, padlock them shut, and uh, SB Honcho, Sam Nazarian, taped a uh, handwritten note to uh, the door on uh, 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 Sahara stationery that said, Be back soon. And I, what he forgot to write was at the Bellagio. <laughs> he should have had one of those little clocks that you can like that you put on the door of like the liquor store when the guy's going to be back, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Be back at five p.m. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, yeah. Go, go ahead. So he's still going to the mat with his charade that uh, that the Sahara is going to reopen as an SLS hotel. So you know, great, good for him. I can't wait for it not to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I you know, I heard a lot of people um, just sort of discussing the way that they did the whole closing process, who were sort of underwhelmed. I don't know what people maybe expected, but it seemed sort of like um, it didn't seem like there was much care put into, uh, you know, signing off of a property that's been there for quite a long time. It's got a, a lot of history in in the city, and um, you know, it was seemed sort of um, unceremoniously shut down and. People were kicked out, and, and that was that. It, it seemed, and it just didn't seem like that. It seemed like they could have done more. They could have come up with a way to um, sort of honor its legacy a little bit more than they did. Hunter, you're absolutely right. They, as far as I'm concerned, they urinated on the spirit of the Sahara that they thought that they were uh, upholding with their Rat Pack nonsense. You know, they should have sent the Grom Dom out. In, in a fitting style. They should have had maybe some tribute artists come in and play on the last night, have a big crazy party, invite everybody to come, you know, do a final toast, a final roll of the dice, you know, and close the thing down. And then the next day, while the press is there covering that, show them models of the new rooms, show them what they were really planning on doing, have a, a ceremonial uh, shovel, first shoveling and news conference and all this stuff. None of that. Instead, he taped an afterthought of a handwritten note to the door. Right. Absolutely embarrassing. The biggest egomaniacal, idiotic move I think I've ever seen anybody do. I'm flabbergasted and upset. Yeah, I I mean, uh, you know, I was considering going out to to witness it. Um, and I now feel like I missed nothing because I don't, you know, again, I wasn't expecting maybe big fanfare, but this seemed like it was so underneath the bar of what they could have, what they could have done. And I don't know, it's just, it's just kind of sad. And it looked, I mean, the the whole process just seemed, instead of it being sort of a celebration of what the Sahara, Sahara was, it's just sort of, it seemed like a very sad and kind of depressing uh, affair. It's fitting, though, because this is how they've run the property from the get-go. They've never tried to hype it or tried to get people in there, you know, as is. It was just limping along until they got enough money to make Sam's, you know, Philip Stark Dungeon Hotel, you know. <laughs> so I, I, I think, I think the, the, it's indicative that these guys don't know what they're doing, that owning a hotel and a club in L.A. is not the same as owning a casino resort. Totally different businesses, totally different ways of doing things. Yeah. I mean, I seriously, I think uh, there's that show Viva Laughlin. I think they should, those guys would have done a better job running the Sahara than Sam yeah. Nazarian did. Absolutely. 
Uh, uh, one thing that maybe we should we should note is, at least with Nazarian, it was sort of like benign, foolish neglect um, down the stretch from you know his ownership reign. Um, it wasn't quite on this uh, you know the the type of you know almost um, evil malignant ownership that Bill yeah. Young had at Tropicana. Um, he, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and you know, I've had uh, I've had many names for them, and they're probably all apt. But I think that Nazarian, at least, you know. He didn't try to get a gaming license. He hired, you know, some, you know, um, an operator to come. Sweet. Billion. I thought all along it was a. Re- uh oh, Jeff. Bill. Jeff, we're kind of you're oh, kind of you're kind of going in and out here. Do me a favor. Um, if sure. you, if you can, uh, give give maybe a little bit more space between your mouth and the mic. It sounds like you're overloading oh. a little bit, and maybe. Yeah, that's- and maybe go back a little bit. You were talking about sort of the difference between Nazarian and how he didn't apply for a gaming license. I think that's yeah. Nazarian didn't apply for a license and really never showed. I don't think he ever proved any interest in running the existing Sahara. So I think, I think, you know, there's nothing, you know, Chuck. Yes. What? What did I do? What did I do? I'm telling you, man, Bill Bill Young is like more powerful than we know. He controls the internet. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Damn. Yeah, it's okay. You just keep you keep dropping out. I just want to make sure that we we get your take point. It, take it back. What you said about Bill, man. He's going to get you. He's going to control the internet. <laughs> I, I would just say Nazarian was it was benign neglect. Um, not you know didn't prove much um, much skill. Um, not the worst we've seen here in Las Vegas. I, well, okay, that that's worst. Worst is probably a, a hard, um, you know, a hard bar to to reach. Um, I it it just seems like I Chuck. I think you maybe put it the best. They sort of closed it the way they operated it, very half heartedly, um, with without uh, going, you know, even the extra, you know, quarter mile. Um, so the question then, of course, is what what happens next? There's a there's a big um, chain link fence around the property now. Uh, it it is um, it's you know kind of sad thing to see. Um, how how long until something happens there, and what is going to happen there? I mean, there was an article in the Sun this past week, which I think was sort of a joke, but it was talking about using the Sahara as a new state capital building and moving the state capital from Carson City to Las Vegas. Now, obviously, there are polis- political and logistical issues with that idea, um, but it, 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 I at least appreciated the the piece from the perspective of it being kind of a, a fun uh, a fun idea to entertain. Yeah. Well, what's going to happen is within the next month, uh, there's going to be an auction of all the stuff, whatever's in there that they can get rid of, and they're going to dismantle it piece by piece. Yeah. That's as far as what we know. And then I think after that, it's just eyeballs. You know, I would say for everybody who's listening who goes to Vegas or lives there, perhaps, is just keep your eyes on that, on the building just to see are there construction trucks, are there – Things moving in, you know, parts, pieces, or, or is it moving and breathing? Is it, does it look like they're actually doing it? Are they proving, you know, that they believe in the, the sort of plans they've announced? Do you think, Chuck, do you think that they're, for, 
for people that might listen to this podcast, do you think that there's any reason to go to that auction? Do you think there might be anything worth getting for a Vegas lover? I'm sure there's going to be all sorts of stuff. You know, when I was walking around in there, uh, the last time I went and did a little photo recon, I, there's just all sorts of great little statuary and uh, bits and pieces, stuff from the rooms, you know, those lamps. Everybody keeps talking about those camel lamps are really hot. Uh, you know, a lot of it, I'm sure it's just going to be like, uh, you know, restaurant stuff. I, I'd kill to have a booth from the House of Lords in the corner of my house. Right. You know, that would be a fantastic thing to take away. But who knows, you know, what they're going to, how they're going to break the thing apart. So, right. Well, as far as the Sahara goes, is there anything else to cover here? I mean, at this point, it's uh, just sort of a sad, um, worn out kind of affair. Uh, is there anything else before we uh, reconvene with Sahara in like 15 years? I'd say we take some uh, some bets here about the exit strategy and how long, like time frame, when and what. Well, to me, I would say um, it's between whether it will be imploded in the long term when someone else buys it to redevelop it or whether it sits there empty for quite a long time, which is a possibility. Um, you know, I think it's a very slim chance that someone would buy it and operate it. Um, probably about as slim as Nazarian redeveloping the property. So, you know, uh, there's so many parcels that are available for, for redevelopment or development. Um, I just can't, this is a good, it's a, it's a decent location, um, but. Hmm. We lost you again, Jeff. It, I think Jeff might've probably said that it hinges on the, uh, a shuttered hotel. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I we lost you there, Jeff, for a second. Hunter, do you want me to call? Do you want me to call in? I'm ha- I'm just having trouble with this Skype thing for some reason. Um, yeah, let me let me call you. Um, hold on one quick second. So <clears throat> here we go. Okay, so uh, as far as what I think is going to happen to the Sahara, I mean, I I I, I have um, I'm definitely on the side of uh, not believing that Nazarian's going to do anything with his property. I, I think he's out one way or another. Um, and if I was going to guess, I would say, you know, it's probably, it probably ends up being, um, some kind of a fire sale type situation similar to we saw with some of these other properties like, um, maybe M resort or, uh, just as far as, um, and maybe another operator that wants to get into the Vegas market inexpensively will, uh, find a way to, to raise some money and the folks, the folks that own it now are going to lose a bunch of money, but they will extricate themselves from their position. Um, as far as who, I don't really have any good guesses, but uh, I don't think anything's going to happen quickly. I think it's going to be um, a sad state of affairs for a while. I'm curious to know how uh, Sam is going to allow his ego to explain this away. Who is he going to blame it on? The banks, the economy, that's question number one. Question number two is, uh, why didn't they redirect all their business to a colony capital? Why didn't they send it to the Hilton? Because they put in $30 bucks into the SBE not all that long ago. 
And the question that that leads to is, did MGM force Sam to close Sahara because of the Bellagio deal? I think, personally, I, I think that last bit sounds like a bit of a stretch to me, just because, um, I, I, I mean, maybe it was icing on the top of the cake, but if, if the property was profitable and making any kind of money, I, I can't imagine that uh, they would have had enough juice to get him to to kill it. I mean, I don't get the impression that Circus has been hurting and because of Sahara taking away business, right? I mean, I, I obviously, you know, there's a good chance that Sahara closing will help Circus Circus, but I, I don't get the impression that Circus has been hurting up until now. I mean, it seems like that's always been uh, a pretty good profit center for MGM, um, and and one of the only properties they have in that market segment. So uh, I don't know. I think as far as how his ego will explain it away, I mean, he, he, we didn't really hear much from him for many years. It wasn't until the shit hit the fan that we he sort of reappeared. Maybe he'll just disappear, and uh, and we won't hear we you know we won't uh, we won't hear much from him again until some kind of a, yeah right. I don't know, Dave. What do you think? Any predictions on how long the place will stay uh, empty and closed? I don't know, but I think they're going to have to implode at some point. It's just going to be worth too much. It's going to cost too much to keep it open, to keep it secure, to make sure you don't have homeless people living in there, and probably setting fires to stay warm in the winter, and maybe burning down the place. You know, eventually you're going to have to implode it because it's just just not going to be worth it. You know, the building isn't going to get better the longer it sits there and you know kind of for to see this on a small scale if you go near flamingo and paradise you can see the key largo yeah. which is little you know used to be a comfort inn i think or quality inn and that's been sitting there for maybe four or five years and it looks awful i mean it just looks like in a war zone so kind of multiply that by a couple factors of magnitude and put that in the strip and so imagine what that's going to look like in five years if they don't implode it you know i don't think they're going to be slapping fresh paint on it every april right and you know keeping it in good shape it's just i don't know what they're going to do but i don't i don't see it just kind of sticking around there but you know maybe maybe they can invite the homeless people in to burn it down as sort of like a free implosion (laughs) yeah there you go yeah insurance money yeah i mean I it it one thing's for sure. It's just sad to see a place like that with a huge fence around it. And you're right; it will start to look pretty decrepit if they don't do something about it. Because the paint will fade; it'll start to flake off. It'll just the place like that needs to be maintained. And if no one's doing it, uh, it's going to start to look awful. How long did the El Rancho sit closed? Quite a long time. Yeah. But, I mean, that was – there's a story I think you can find. It's archived online somewhere um, about what a what a pit that was inside after just a couple of years and just how that totally fell apart. So, you know, you can see the same thing happening with the Sahara. Yeah. I, well, I mean, hopefully somebody does something. Um, obviously, uh, the big X factor is just the economy and how quickly it continues to recover. Um and, you know, if that significantly speeds up, then maybe we've got a good chance for someone to swoop in and do something interesting with it. Even if the economy does improve in the short term, though, can you imagine anybody funding uh, an implosion and construction of a, you know, normal-sized mega resort in that part of the Strip? I mean, it just seems kind of ludicrous. 
Yeah, I don't see that happening until, you know, the first thing that's going to pick up there is probably going to be Echelon. That's the furthest along. And until that happens, I don't think anything is going to happen. And once that happens, you're going to have the same problem you have now, which is an oversupply of rooms. You know, I mean, if the occupancy, if the room occupancy was like 95%, I could see people maybe getting interested. It's not even 85% right now. So I just don't see anybody putting any money into building rooms in Vegas anytime soon until there's an extra couple million people here coming a year and it can soak up the supply we have now. I think Dave's exactly right. But I would say that it's not out of the realm of possibility for someone to make the land play there. Um, you know, the biggest players in the last decade, MGM Resorts, you know, they're not, they're not in a position to be able to start throwing money around. But, there, but um, two entities in Las Vegas clearly are um, Wynn and Sands. Not to say that they would want to, want to acquire that spot, but if Nazarian's partners, his, uh, the money people who were behind his purchase of the property, um, if those people are desperate enough to sell and unwilling to wait for what I think was a real estate play all along, um, they just, you know, timed it awfully. If those people are desperate, um, certainly, you know, when could be a spender in that situation, um, you know, he's going to be building Kotai and, and Sands is certainly spending a lot of money in on Kotai right now as well. But, um, it's not out of the realm of possibility that if that price drops, uh, you know, what did Nazarian pay? Somewhere in the $300 million, yeah. something like that, for for that corner. Um, it's a good location. If if the price drops south of, you know, $100 million, um, you know, d- motivated seller, um, you could have a, a, you know, sort of a buyer who would buy it, um, you know, maybe out of their goodwill. Uh, that, that might be something Wynn would do to implode it and hold it. Um, you know, and, and, and maybe even Sands, you know, we always, you know, Caesars has, has its own debt trouble, but it has the kind of owners who have, you know, fairly substantial cash uh, on hand anyway. Um, they've limited their exposure through Caesars, but they could buy it, you know, as a separate entity. Um, and then, you know, in, if the land price was cheap enough, I doubt that they would, but it's not. It's not ridiculous to think that they might, um, and e- you know, even Carl Icahn, um, if if you know um, he was able to get the place for forty million dollars or fifty million or something like that, you know, Icahn would you know might be might be a possible buyer. So you know, that's that's probably probably what Las Vegas has to hope for right now is a land buyer. Who would implode the property? I think it's fairly unlikely that some cut-rate operator is going to come in and say, "Hey, we can do with this property what the Onyx people have done at Tropicana." Um, I, you know, it, it's not out of the realm of possibility, but I think it's very, very unlikely. Um, so, you know, uh, I, I, the best Las Vegans can probably do is hope that there's a quicker turnaround than, you know, it seems to be, you know, so far. Do you guys – oh, go ahead, Chuck. I was curious. I don't remember offhand, but who owns the the plot next door, the former Crown Wet and Wild thing? Still Paul Loudon and, uh, you know, his bankers, the guy who um, 
you know, used to own the Sahara and then so, and sold it to Bill Bennett, right. um, Paul Loudon, and you know he still runs the Pioneer in Laughlin. And uh, yeah, so if you, you grab know, both of those parcels, I could see Sands getting a play for both of those parcels, and then they could build a, their new convention center or something. You know, instead of trying to shoehorn more stuff onto their plot that they already have. Possibly. Well, and and if heck, if you're going to go for those, buy you know buy give Icon a you know sixty percent profit and buy buy the Fontainebleau site for two fifty, and then you have everything for a pretty big, huge yeah. block north of the Riviera, except for the Turnberry Towers. And then yeah, you build right. a city within a city. <laughs> <laughs> that urban That's master planning. Such a great idea. You city off center. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I have a question for you. I was just thinking of as for you, all you guys, as I, we were discussing this is let's say that someone does implode Sahara, you know, the, the, the brand, the name Sahara, um, it's been around for a long time. It, it's got, it definitely has some, um, has some brand equity. And this also leads me back to a discussion, uh, about brand equity and all other, um, deceased brands like Desert Inn, which I believe, uh, Wynn owns as part of their portfolio. They haven't used it for anything, but, um, do, do you, uh, can you imagine these brands ever returning? Um, are any of them, uh, do, do, I mean, so, like the Stardust brand, um, Dunes. Can, the, yeah, can the, we, there's a bunch, but they've never proven retro has never proven to be, you know, a, a positive, um, but it's not to say it couldn't happen. Look at Aladdin. You know, so many people said at the time, why did they keep the Aladdin name? And then certainly after 9-11, it didn't prove to be, uh, you know, a real, you know, help. But, you know, they kept the Aladdin name. Many people came to Las Vegas with not realizing that there was, that Aladdin was new. Right. You know, they had heard of Aladdin before. Um, and just like people, you know, who question the advisability of redeveloping properties, you know, reusing names. You know, now that's not to say that there won't be some cultural shift in among the people who come to Las Vegas who want retro. But, you know, to my knowledge, it's retro has never really proven to be, you know, a great seller. Bally's tries to sell retro, you know, classic Vegas. I don't think it works. Um, I think people, you know, just aren't really into it. Maybe it could work. And maybe Dr. Dave has an example of where it has worked. Well, I'm not familiar with it. I'll just before Dave, before you answer that, I'll just interject real quickly. One thing that I I think could be fun is using is when using the Desert Inn brand to create sort of a very small boutique hotel if they ever redevelop that golf course to do like the Desert Inn Hotel and Spa at Win or something like that and have it be a, an obvious subset. Just because I think that out of all of those that that were mentioned, I think that one is sort of the classiest. But again, that's sort of pie in the sky. Dave, any um, any insight on Jeff's question? Yeah, first I think he should call it the Desert Win. <laughs> I think that would be awesome. And if he doesn't, I know Chuck will. Um, or the Desert Win Spiegel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, second, you know, I think the El Cortez does a good job of it. I think in general, downtown is try- starting to do this a little bit. But I think probably the El Cortez is the best people to do in it because that's almost entirely their appeal right now is the, you know, good slots, good deal at the tables, cheap food, and nostalgia. So I think they're making a go of it. Yeah. Boyd just 
if I remember correctly, Boyd recently sued somebody for infringing on the Stardust yes, trademark. Correct. So they're still protecting that. You know, I don't see anybody else keeping their eyeballs on their old on the brands that they've usurped. Right. So but it could be that you know, I know there were plans to put like a little Stardust lounge inside of Echelon uh with some trinkets I imagine of, of the old hotel, but Yeah. I just some some of those brands are obviously m- more synonymous with um, good than bad than others. I mean, uh, you know, there's you can wax nostalgic about places like the Sands because of the Rat Pack Association and and that sort of thing. Whereas others are probably far less interesting. But uh, yeah, you know, I'm I'm I guess I'm a little bit surprised we haven't seen any of that. And and I don't mean on a on a on a massive scale like maybe naming a property after it, but sort of what you were just talking about, Chuck, using it for you know, a feature within a property like a lounge or a showroom or something. There two were two El Ranchos as well. Right. One example, when since I've been in Las Vegas, when um, Harrah's sold its Las Vegas showboat um, to a couple uh, local uh, wannabe casino operators, um, and they took the showboat brand with them, which was, you know, that really hurt that property. And they thought, oh, the castaways, which had been, you know, not too long before, um, demolished to make way for the Mirage. Right. Um, I guess a decade or more before, but they they had said, um, "Hey, this is a brand that Las Vegans love. They love that old little castaways." And I remember going in there. It was a real small but sort of cool place for its size. Remember, <laughs> the Las Vegas changes so much in that amount of time and. The castaways, you know, that didn't help them at all. I mean, it certainly did. You know, I, I don't know that it hurt them more than any other name, but um, you know, that certainly wasn't exactly a uh, you know a brilliant um, operational uh, history it's, over it's there true. either. All right, so I take it all back. It's the worst idea ever. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I think. We've talked quite a bit about the Sahara. I don't think there's going to be anything else to say for a while uh, until something happens, which could be quite a while. So, um, you know, I, I think I would just say for any listeners that uh, happen to be um, in and around this or around the Sahara and notice anything of interest, of course, we're, we'd always love to hear about it. But other than that, I, I doubt we're going to be discussing it much uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, but we can move on to a little bit more history. Um, we had two notable uh, gaming-related figures die recently uh, in the past week. One was um, William Pennington, who was um, Bill Bennett's partner at Circus Circus, uh, and really had a that company had such a huge hand in shaping um, the way the strip developed and through from Circus Circus to Excalibur, Luxor, Mandalay Bay. Um, and and the other was was Don Barden, and I admit I, I know far less about Barden's legacy than I do about Pennington. But but Dave, um, as our resident historian, can you give us a quick um, a little bit of info on on each one of these guys and sort of maybe their their highlight reel? Yeah, I think Barden was most significant for being one of the few African American casino owners in the country. Um, did not do that much stuff in Nevada outside of acquiring Fitzgerald's, which hasn't really gone anywhere since he acquired it. You know, it was probably better known for his stuff in the riverboats. He ended up buying out Trump in Gary, so kind of added Trump's casino there to his holdings there at Majestic Star. 
So that's probably what he's best known for and was also deeply involved in Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh. Um, Bill Pennington is the lesser known of the two guys who leased Circus Circus from Jay Sarno and Stan Mallon and the other owners uh, when they ran into some trouble in the early 70s. And in the development of Bill Bennett and kind of the hagiography around him as he assumed active control of the company, I think Bennett's contribution has really been lost. You know, he was right there alongside Bill Bennett when they took control of the Circus Circus, was with him in 83 when they actually bought it and took the company public, and then, you know, let Bennett have the, the spotlight. So I think that's kind of his legacy right there at Circus Circus, which today tends to be a punchline, but in the 80s was the most successful and profitable casino company in the country. Right. I mean, it, it's easy to scoff at Circus, but it was pretty amazing what they were able to do, um, both in terms of you know marketing to sort of new parts, segments of the market, some of the very creative ways that they did their marketing, the ways that they were able to court the financial markets to give them capital, um, Dave, I know you've you've been working on a book about Sarno, so uh, I'm sure that some of this stuff, uh, at least as it relates to the early days, I would assume is is sort of fresh in your mind. Oh yeah. Uh, um, I don't know. It's it's a great story. I I wish there was more of that history out there, <clears throat> Dave. Okay, writing. Um, we're, hey <laughs> hey, I've I'm working on it. We need to find a some a publisher to take it on. I, yeah. Very close to being delivered, so it's, it's no fault of mine. <laughs> One of the things that uh, that I found interesting, I, I think, it was in Pete Early's Super Casino book. You know, they go through a lot of the history of what became Mandalay Resort Group, um, and it was Circus Circus Enterprise at the time um, that Luxor opened. Um, they talked about how there was a, you know, there was a, you know, partial falling out between Bennett and Pennington and uh it's sort of like they each retreated to their sphere um uh Bennett you know stayed here in Las Vegas and Pennington who was Reno based sort of you know became the guy up there you know they have a circus circus up there and um and that's where he was he was from if I remember correctly and so that's sort of interesting you know the idea that you know you have a you know so a, a what was, I guess, a partnership originally where each person sort of runs a sphere. Um, you don't see that kind of, you know, in the corporate world today, you don't see too much of that, but that was sort of interesting, um, if I remember that correctly. And then um, as, as for Barden, you know, I covered his um, expansion into um, the gaming business here, covered a little bit about what he, uh, you know, did up in, in Gary, um, Indiana, um, with his boat there, um, Majestic Star. Um, and um, that boat eventually acquired Donald Trump's, you know, failed uh, Indiana casino. When he came to Las Vegas, um, there was a lot of emphasis on how, that, uh, how um, he was, you know, the first significant Las African-American Las Vegas casino operator, or one of the first. And you know, it's one of those things where it's almost like he gets put in a box because of his of his race. Um, the media just wants to focus on that, and you know, particularly I, I remember TV. You know, they would just that's you know, the way they refer to him, and it's like I could see his marketing people, you know, 
almost, you know, pulling their hair out um, because they they were trying to emphasize, oh, Mr. Barden, are you going to try and reorient Fitzgerald's towards African-American customers and clientele? And, you know, I mean, he, he's a proud man, um, and, um, you know, he comes from a city where, you know, the African-American customer base is, is more significant and bigger. Um, that kind of a marketing orientation, um, they never really adopted wholeheartedly at Fitzgerald's, but, you know, they did try and, um, you know, sort of um, reorient a little bit of their entertainment policy and, um you know, it, it was always a half-hearted effort that seemed to fail in both directions. Um, you know, the clientele for that property was always, you know, very solidly, you know, pretty low-rent, middle America, um, not a very significant African-American customer base at all when he bought it. Um, and so it was just sort of a like a, a weird hybrid kind of marketing approach that probably, you know, didn't, you know, it, it didn't, it certainly didn't help. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, Barden has really been disinterested. He made a big attempt in Pennsylvania. Um, he bought, he got the one license for Pittsburgh for the Rivers Casino and um, was unable to secure the financing to build the thing. Um, his, you know, his casinos in Las Vegas and Indiana um, never threw off the cash, and he couldn't attract the uh, investment capital that he figured he could. He couldn't get the place built in Pittsburgh, and so a Chicago guy, Neil Bloom, and a few other investors came in, sort of rescued it. I think Barden kept, you know, some nominal share, if maybe none at all. I don't remember, but that was sort of his flame out in the casino business. Um, it wouldn't have surprised anyone had he tried to extricate himself from the Las Vegas downtown property. I think it leaves a big question about what happens to that casino. Fitzgerald's, he bought it out of a um, you know, bankruptcy situation um, before. It is not a, you know, look, you look at the other, you know, less well-funded downtown casinos, um, they have done very, very poorly. Um, so you have to question the future of Fitzgerald. It's a very big hotel for downtown. And, uh, you know, there is, uh, clearly there's not been much spent there. So I think, I think when you look at what's, what the future of Fitzgerald's is, um, it has to be even more in question than it was before Barton passed away. Well, thanks Jeff for, for filling in some of that detail. Um, I think, at least for me, and, and uh, you know, Dave, feel free to to shoot me down if I'm off base with this. But I think both of the, there were very short little stories about both of these guys, obit really short obits. I, I think for me at least, it shows a, a sort of a bl- a blind spot that the industry, and maybe it's a, a statewide thing. Um, I'll just group everybody in the state together because that's convenient. Um, that it, you know, there's not a lot of attention paid to this kind of history. I mean, these were, especially in Pennington's case, very important to the development of a critical industry. And it, I, I, I bet ten, nine and a half out of ten people would have on on <clears throat> stopped on the street would have would have no idea who the guy was, um, and probably nine out of ten wouldn't even know who Bill Bennett was. So I think I mean I don't know maybe uh, Dave I don't know if you disagree with me that uh, it doesn't seem like this kind of history is really celebrated the way that it should be but it just seems like you know these these are 
important. They had these people had a significant impact, and uh, we should we should know more about them. You can't expect Dave to disagree with that. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, that was a home run. I, I guess. Uh, is, is Dave even still with us? <laughs> Dave, you might have have a... an emergency of some kind, perhaps. Yeah. Um, all well, right. What, what, one thing that I would I would say, Hunter, you're absolutely I, right. I'm um, cl- clearly. Um, the people should have paid, you know, should have paid more attention to it. Um, I'm going to blame the news media for that. I mean, you know, the public, <laughs> the public's interest is, is uh, pretty ephemeral, but the news media needed to be on those stories more than they were. It was a very lame effort, um, by our print media, you know, um, you know, heck you can't pay attention to a casino you know, a, a, a prominent casino executive or two dying when you have the Billboard Music Awards coming up, you know, the Sugar Factories introducing a new lollipop, and uh, there's, a, there's, there's one of the hottest DJs playing at a club on the Strip. Those are the kind of things that people are focusing on nowadays, and, uh, you know, I would just say that's pathetic. And uh, people need to, you know, there needs to be a greater attention on, a greater attention paid to the history of the city. Um, I was pretty disgusted by that. Hey, I'm I'm still here, guys. Can no, you hear me? It's fine. Yeah, yeah. I can hear you. I don't okay. know if you heard what I said. I did. I did. My my uh, headset was muted. No problem. I was I was I was talking, but I was being heard. <laughs> so let me say this: uh, not only. It's kind of okay. So it's one thing if somebody who moved here in 2009 to get a job parking cars doesn't know who who Bill Pennington is. I can totally understand that. Sure. You know, it's another thing when people in the industry who make this their careers don't care enough about this sort of history to really get involved and really know about it. You know, that's the thing that really frustrates me, you know, and it's, it frustrates me even more when people involved with properties who've devoted their careers to working at properties don't care enough about the legacy of that properties to make sure that they have archives established and that we know about the men and women who actually work there instead of just knowing what's in the financial reports and seeing that, you know, knowing, hey, these are some people working here who did some really great work and we should remember them. You know, that's what bothers me more. Sure. Than the man on the street not knowing. From a historical perspective, and also from an operational perspective, I mean, obviously times are changing, but a lot, you know, the mistakes that someone might make tomorrow, maybe they they may have been made, you know, a decade ago. Learn from that stuff. You, there's, uh, you know, you the more you know about the history, the the better positioned you are to be able to execute better in the future. Um, there's no need to uh, repeat uh, yesterday's mistakes just because of ignorance. Yeah, and so I think it's also. Would... Dave, you go. All right. Yeah, I think it's also really important if you're in top-level management at a a property, you should have a really good sense of where that property fits in with the spectrum of all the other properties, both everything that's going on right now. So that means you can't boast that you haven't been in your competitors' buildings before and where where they stand in history. You know, that's one of the things I really admire about Wynn is that he has a very well-developed sense of exactly where he stands in history. And it's one of the things I tell my students in my casino history class. I'm like, look, you know, 10 years from now, you might be in a top position in a casino and I don't want somebody walking in off the street and knowing more about your property than you do. 
So pay attention to class and learn something. And I think that's advice I would give. I, I heard that line. I heard that yeah. line on TV a couple of weeks ago. Really? I, you know, so I tell that to anybody. Like, you know, you've got to really know this stuff. Yeah. And to me, it's important. I don't know. I don't know why you wouldn't want to know it. You know, I know there's, I know there's limited amount of time in the day, but it doesn't take that long. And it's kind of cool to know. Chuck, what were you, oh, Dave, I totally agree with Dave. I would say that when it comes to the news media, there are plenty of people in town who are very familiar with both of the, both of the uh, executives who died and their operations. Um, plenty of experts like Dave and many others who could be cited. Um, you know, and I, to be quite frank, I don't know what happened in Reno. It wouldn't, you know, Reno is a smaller city, and it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, there's some kind of effort or there has already been something decent written that I have not seen linked to online um, about Pennington up up there. But uh, certainly, you know, those, those two guys deserved a more extensive uh, um, look from the news media at, at what their what their uh, you know professional careers meant to the city and the state. Chuck, were you going to and and the nation? <laughs> Chuck, were you going to say something? I was going to uh, ask a question uh, of you guys: if somebody wanted to learn this history, if they didn't know, how would they find out? That's a good question, and Dave, obviously, I think you're probably the best position to kind of give a, a quick nutshell answer to that question. I mean, what yeah. is what is the best way? Right now, the Pete Early book is probably the best source for Bill Pennington. It's not totally perfect. There's a couple of things in there that don't seem quite accurate in light of what I've learned in doing research for the Sarno book that I'm hopefully going to correct once that comes out. You know, we desperately need a publisher to say, you know what, I'm going to put some money down and acquire this book and uh, publish it and promote it yeah. as far as that goes. Um, and I'm just having some shameless self-promotion there, which surely is not a bad thing. Uh, <laughs> as far as in general, you know, there's the American Gaming Association's Hall of Fame, which I maintain a website for UNLV. There's that, but there's really not a ton of resources. And I think that's something that is going to be a problem because the only people interested, the only people who would get money for to, to put money into this, to do it would be the industry. And they're just not that interested. You know, you're not going to write for a National Endowment of the Humanities grant to do a website or do, you know, create a project about casino executives. You know, I just can't see them saying, yeah, that sounds awesome. You know, we're not going to fund these artists. We'll fund that instead. So I think really a lot of it has to come from people in the industry who, who care as individuals and say, you know what, I do care. And I think we should remember these folks. Well, it's a it's a shame that there isn't more of that stuff, and I hope that that will be corrected over time. I mean, I know Dave that you you you've been working on your Sarno project, and uh, the publishing world has obviously uh, in, been somewhat upended by uh, technology in the last several years, um, and it's 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 just a different world out there. Uh, it's harder to get to get things done the way that you used to be able to. I I hope I hope that 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 road is. Uh, you know, that you're getting towards the end of that and that you find a way to, to make that happen. Cause I know that and, and whatever comes next, um, it, it's important stuff. It needs to be out there. Thank you. Dave, can I ask a quick question about, sure. What would, what, what's Pennington's like, um, in terms of his partnership with Bennett, in terms of what they did at circus circus, I mean, you know, 
obviously out of the hotel and went with a very middle American market orientation. But what, in terms of the history of the business, what what are the things that they, you know, you would you your understanding that they that they would that they added and that Pennington in particular brought to the table that made him an important you know pioneer in the business. It's very hard to say accurately based on what's out there right now because history's written by the victors and basically Bennett won that round because he stayed there. So all the official stuff that came out from Circus Circus Enterprises had Bennett as the sole originator. You know, I've got to think that a lot of it came from Pennington too. I think there's some people you could talk to who were around back then, you know, definitely some of the folks who later were big in Mandalay, but also people like Mel Larson, who was their marketing guy for a long time, PR guy for a long time, who I think, you know, I'd love to sit down with and interview and find out, hey, exactly what was Pennington's contribution and what should he be known for? That, that though, highlights another problem is, you know, now Pennington's gone. It, that The ability to use him as a resource, as a you know, primary source is is gone. I mean, and since there isn't, uh, since there aren't resources and to out there to do that kind of reporting and, and um, you know, to, to book that kind of history, I mean, that's a real shame. And that's going to keep happening. I mean, this is you know the sort of that this really important important era for the industry um through the 60s 70s 80s and you know 90s i guess i mean obviously a lot of those guys are still pretty young guys and gals but um this is going to keep happening and at some point doesn't that some of that history just get lost yeah it does you know and that's one of the reasons why i've been you know, hoping to work with some of the properties to sit down and document some of the stories of some of their employees, you know, both managers, but also line employees, you know, people who've been working at a casino for 30 years, you know, 20, 30 years have some really good stories to tell and have something important to say. And I think history should remember them. Yeah. Now, everything, you know, right, you know, actually sitting down and writing books, writing long articles can be very time consuming. But I think one alternative that Dave has done a great job of, and um, I, I should commend him again on his podcast that he does for his gaming studies program. Um, one in particular comes to mind, the uh, interview he did with Jack Harpster, um, who wrote the uh, book about Cy Red, the um, guy who uh, you know created video poker, IGT. Um, those kind of um, you know interviews, um, the, and and I think that you know there are people who work with Pennington. There's people who work with Bennett, and so when when Dave and when other podcasters you know interview people, memorialize what the, the, their memories. At least it's available, hopefully, in some kind of you know for a lot for the long term, so that people can go back and return to that, refresh their memories, learn something for the first time. Um, so I, I really would commend. Um, you know, those who are doing, you know, Dave and, and, and others who do that kind of, those kind of interviews, Steve Fries. Um, you know, I don't know. Anybody who who is doing stuff like that is really doing a good thing for those who want to uh, better understand, you know, the industry and, and its history as well. Yeah, and if I could add something else, the University of Nevada's oral history program, which is based up at UNR up in Reno, really has been doing great work in that for a long time. And I'm not totally sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and tons of people and I'm not totally Mm -hmm. sure what their status is with the budget cuts. You know, they definitely get hit, got hit pretty hard. So if they're even still functioning right now, I'm not sure, but that just goes to show you what happens, you know, 
when times get tough, this is the kind of stuff that gets cut. And I can't imagine what history would be like, what we would think about Benny Binion's role in history if we didn't have that interview he did with Mary Ellen Glass back in 1973, you know, yep. or the Bill Harra. I mean, Bill Harra, I think two weeks before he, you know, died, gave this great two volume, it fills two books, this great interview where he talked about his life and everything. You know, we wouldn't, it's just amazing how how much would have, would have been lost if he hadn't done that. So, yeah. I think we need to do more of that. Somebody should call Kerkorian ASAP. I'm I'm working on it. I mean, <laughs> that, that's I mean that's a joke, but it's not. I mean, it's you know it's true. I mean, I hope he lives a long time, but he, I, he's hey, very old. I've See, got Wayne's the ask. sixty nine years old. Yeah, I've I've got the ask in already. So. Yeah, it's I've I've done my part. I think I I I don't doubt it. I just wish that, that more of this stuff was 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 maybe easier and was happening more. But anyway, um, I, I want to move on uh, to try and get squeeze one more thing in before we wrap up for today, which is um, talk about wind resorts a little bit. Um, you know, wind's always a very popular topic uh, on here and and on various sites and whatnot. I mean, it's such an interesting company, uh, Dave. You wrote a little bit. Um, over on Two Way about some statements he made recently uh, about Wynn being more of a Chinese company than an American company, and of course he said this more. He said this in the past as well. But uh, you you ran some numbers, and it sounds like that's true. More it's true more now than oh man. I'm just totally. <laughs> it is true now more than ever. Yes, that's what I was trying to say. Yeah. Um, so why don't you quickly summarize uh, what you wrote? Yeah, sure. I was kind of trying to get into his head to see why this would be such a big thing. You know, obviously some of it, some of it is strictly partisan because he's been critical of the current administration. That's kind of factoring into it. But it's also got some real solid basis in the business. You know, right now, Macau accounts for about 68 69% of Wynn's total revenues. He's saying that Win Kotai is going to double his Macau revenues, in which case I projected by 2016, Macau is going to account for about 82% of Win's total revenues. After I wrote that, I thought about adding this, but I've been a little bit busy lately. I, I, I just thought, hey, this does not include the possibility that Japan gets casinos. So if you imagine that Japan gets, a casino, gets casinos and Win gets a concession there, you know, easily the the uh, Las Vegas market share of Wynn Resorts could go down to five percent. Yeah, you know, it's already. I think it's very realistic to say within five years or so, six years at the outset, it's going to be less than twenty percent. And I think if Japan gets casinos and Wynn gets a casino there, it'll easily be down below five percent. The interesting thing that I didn't get to cover in the article is if you look at the cost of the assets they have how much higher they are in Vegas. So basically Vegas costs a lot more to run. It's going to cost probably, I think about a double to run and is going to make about one fifth, one fourth. Don't know how the math works out of hmm. the revenues. Macau. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah. So very. at least he's still putting money in here. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, you know, he can spout off as much as he wants about how much he dislikes um, president Obama and his policies. But um, in the last couple of days, through through um, sort of some of the pieces that you referenced, and there was a story in the Wall Street Journal today, um, you know, some interesting info. He was in the journal story today. He was asked specifically 
about succession plans at Wynn Resorts. And he, you know, he basically said, A, I'm not planning to retire. I'm young. I have a young wife. Uh, you know, <laughs> ha ha. Um, and then two, they're talking about who could potentially succeed him. And he mentioned Linda Chen, who's the head of their marketing organization and on the board of the parent company. And, you know, she's been with – was with Mirage Resorts uh, since I think as far back as 89. She's been with him forever. Um, you know, she's a, she's a Chinese-American woman. So she, she – that's, a, I think, a very interesting statement. He's saying, look, uh, I can imagine, you know, this, this, this woman with Chinese heritage running the company going forward uh, if I were to retire. I think that's 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 very interesting to hear because that's we've speculated a lot in the past about you know what's going to happen when Wynn finally does retire who will run the company, uh, and um, it's interesting to to have her uh, singled out uh, so explicitly. Uh, the other thing I think is interesting is just they're ta- they're talking about Kotai finally moving forward because that the last few conference calls, um, quarterly calls, you know they've said well we're we're ready to go you know they've they've been waiting on government approval. And, um, you know, the, the uh, Galaxy opened um, just recently and, and there was some speculation that the government wanted to wait until that was open to approve Wynn's plans. The other interesting story about that was him – was Steve Wynn saying how he went to the Galaxy opening and had him rethinking some of his design choices for the Kotai property, which uh, – Chuck, I don't know. Can you remember a time in the past where Wynn ever said he was rethinking one of his designs because of something he saw at a competitor's property? I, I'm willing to guess that this was more of a, uh, a way of him backwardly praising, forwardly advertising his coming property and yeah. being nice to the competition. Yeah, very, yeah. very much could be. Uh, it would be interesting though to get a little bit if, if you know, if he was to get more specific to see if there, you know, if there was a specific thing that I mean, it was just such a throwaway line. But I wanted to, you know, I wanted to wait, wait, wait. Hey, wait! I want to know. You know, what does that mean? Like, what are you talking about exactly? Yeah. Um, I well, when we have him on the show, we can ask him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's interesting when you know, and and certainly he has uh, he has right to be uh, very appreciative of what he's been able to um, you know achieve in in China and get uh, you know the concession was given to him at you know rel- practically no cost. Was able to sell a, su- a subconcession for nine hundred million dollars, um, practically covering the cost of with Macau. Um, so he has done. Obviously, you know that his his he's very happy that he's there. Um, the prospects are are great for the future, and he knows that. Um, sometimes I think, what would Win's reaction be if he had the same kind of governmental? obstacles or impediments you know the way he describes things in china oh they're very deliberate they're you know <laughs> right. if he had deliberate government as a roadblock in las vegas or anywhere else he would lose his mind um, <laughs> but he is political enough to know that he and, and and more political than his big rival in macau um he knows um you know the way to approach that government um he always has um, you know, you know, beginning from the, you know, from the beginning. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I pretty much, you know, I, certainly I think everybody, a lot of people get a little tired with, you know, the political pronouncements. And, you know, to me, I just don't focus on them that much. But I think definitely, um, you know, China is the future of that company or of that. And, and, and Dave's right, Japan, you know, Flor- but, but you could also say Florida, you know the Boston area, 
Um, you know, there are, you know, other future endeavors for that company. And, uh, you know, so I think Dave's, you know, Dave's hit the nail on the head. Um, the, the Las Vegas, um, you know, piece of that company is going to, is likely to grow smaller and smaller, you know, even with a Las Vegas rebound, um, a, a better rebound. So, you know, I thought, uh, I, I like, I like Dave's piece, just looking at the numbers. Um, and it will be uh, very interesting to see, um, how, how long it takes them to build the place, how big cost overruns are. I mean, does it end up being a three or four billion um, property. Dave mentioned how much less he's had to invest in Macau for what he gets out of it. The return there has been phenomenal, especially given the subconcession sale. But that, but a big part of that is because there's no the, the hotel rooms are so, um, so you know they're so um, less numerous. Um, you just don't have to build as many rooms in Macau. It's a market. It's a day trip. You know, two-day trip market. You know, so Adelson has invested in the idea that people that visit lengths are going to grow and grow and become more like Las Vegas. I think Wynn's always been a little skeptical about that. Um, you know, even though he is putting double the number of rooms in at Wynn Kotai, um, you know, he he sees the nature of visits there as being very similar to what the Atlantic City market you know, has been for a long time. Um, you know, people make, you know, they may go down two or three times a month, certainly five or six times a year or more. You know, Las Vegas visitors are much less frequent. And so, you you know, I loved on his conference call, he was explaining why he didn't want a permanent show. You know, Adelson is invested in the Lion King, a Dragon show. Um, those, those kind of shows, Wynn says when your customers come, you know, 25 times a year, I mean, yeah, maybe they'll go see a show more than once, but they're not going to go 15 or 20 times. And so he wants to bring in artists to have little, have brief appearance, you know, um, you know, short, short appearances. Um, I think he does a very good job of learning from these markets. And, uh, you know, so, you know, I have, I have a feeling that Win Kotai will probably be a, you know, a pretty successful venture when he gets it up and running. Chuck, on the win topic, you posted an interesting piece at Vegas Tripping about their social media efforts uh, at the Win Las Vegas Twitter account, which has yep. like basically turned itself off. Um, yeah. Any thoughts on that? Um, you know, I mean, you wrote a little bit, little bit about it. Do you have an opinion on on why that is and on what's yeah, going on? Yeah, well, you know, it's a good question. I, I think I I wrote about that not necessarily to come to a conclusion, but to uh, really ask the question and see if it uh, dislodged any boulders. Um, uh, it's been what, six or seven weeks or so since the, the mass exodus of PR folks from when, including uh, the woman who operated their Twitter account. And in that intervening time, I, I sampled all of the tweets and organized them and you can see uh, it just slowly dropping off. You know, it's dramatic from the time that that uh, that they made the changes until now. You know, they're they're maybe talking to their customers via this channel once every two or three days. That means they're not interacting at all with people who are talking to the resort. And you know, in studying all of this stuff, you could see when 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 the account was manned. 
when there were people operating it that, uh, you know, they were, that's a dog toy. Um, <laughs> there were, there were people. Oh yes. Oh, shoot. Yeah. Let me take this thing and throw it all the way over there. <laughs> so when people uh, were messing with the, with the account, you know, they're talking to people. It's like, Oh, you had a good time at the show. You should go do this. You know, you should do that. Or you should do this. You know, I know you like this. So you should try this. And they're really kind of interacting with people and being sort of like a mobile on your phone concierge. And for somebody like me, I won't walk into the concierge office to ask them questions. This would be a way that I would actually want to talk to the resort because I don't necessarily have to make a hike from here to wherever the concierge is. So this is a dude. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so he keeps bringing it back. Things we're planning to fetch. Okay. So ooh. <laughs> anyway, they they basically disconnected the phone here at their at their social media, and it's. It's either uh, that they, they've given up on social media, they just don't think it's a worthwhile tool, or you know they haven't gotten around to hiring anybody yet who's going to do it. I kind of think it's the former, because you probably would have somebody in mind or somebody in line right. uh, to, to keep it going if that were the case. So the question is, you know, is, is the flirtation with social media over? If wind's leading the charge in everything, then will we see other resorts do the same? I doubt it. I think this is a mistake. Yeah. If I can... Well, do you, did you get any informed um, response, Chuck? Anybody tell you what they think is happening or what they know is happening or no response in that, in that regard? I haven't... No boulders have been dislodged except from customers. <laughs> so, if I can... Oh, sorry. Go. Okay, I will go. You know, talking to some of the folks who do Twitter for casinos and some of the folks at Win, I know one of the things they've struggled with is being able to show what kind of financial contribution this makes, you know, monetizing Twitter, which is really hard, which, you know, if you go by click-throughs and anything you can really quantify, it's very difficult to do that. So I think it's a very hard sell to make for folks who do social media to say, hey, this is going to make you a lot of money. You know, as Chuck's mentioned, it it is really, it does work really well as kind of a service recovery and concierge tool. So to me, it would make a lot of sense for them to say, look, if we're, if we're paying people this much money to sit at a concierge desk in the corner of the casino, wouldn't it be a great idea to have people actually on Twitter and Facebook doing the same thing? But apparently some folks at Wynn don't feel the same way. It doesn't make sense though, because if, if, the, the folks in charge of the, the new win PR regime, Weaver, etc., they came from Caesars that has a powerhouse social media team. You know, those guys are handling six, seven, eight, what, 15 casinos or so and marketing and talking people. And yeah. Really and it's got a lot of heart, too. Out of it. It's got a lot of heart, too. I mean, they've got their exactly. little, their Vegas blog that is, like, pretty snarky yeah. and fun. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they get their customers and they understand that everything's kind of like goofy sort of fun and stuff and they're doing a fantastic job. So you couldn't say that, that they're just anti-social media because they, they were doing it there. Would these guys not like it or are they trying to figure out some other way to do it? It doesn't make sense that the new regime did it because they don't like social media. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see if it's just a temporary thing and things start up again or whether it is – 
you know that I mean it may be it may be as simple as a new regime comes in and they decide they want to do a a strategic review and in the interim period things are on hold I don't know mm-hmm. um, but time will tell clearly uh, if if things don't get started again soon um, then uh, it it the, the silence uh, will will be even more deafening. Um, I want to, I, we're going a little bit over, but I want to try and squeeze in one last thing, um, really quickly, which is, um, Dave, you wrote about, um, construction at the blue ribbon at the Cosmopolitan, which had been damaged after a water main broke. And you just, you did a story about how they were able to, um, reconstitute that way faster than they, than they were able to build it originally. Um, can you quickly uh, explain what the story is there? Yeah, it, it was incredible. You know, I thought this might be a neat story. Really, I didn't see anybody else writing about this, which is kind of funny since I know they did big did a big, big media push for the in for the reopening, and you know sent out sent me this invite to come down and have sushi and da 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 da, which I didn't do. So um, full disclosure, I've had no complimentary sushi or sashimi or anything like that out of this. I was kind of curious, like, hey, the what does it take? Yeah. <laughs> I was just curious, like, what does it take to rebuild a restaurant, you know, being as thrashed as it was? Right. And so I talked to the folks at Cosmopolitan, ended up getting an interview with Bruce Bromberg and a couple of other folks there, their construction guy, um, Chris Johnson, who's their VP of construction. And really, it was basically putting dozens of people on that job, being very determined to get it done some good luck in finding stuff, you know, being able to source some stuff like the floor, which had taken them months to get beforehand. Luckily the people who had that still had some left over. So they were able to get that and really just making it a prior- priority and working pretty much around the clock to get that together. It was, so it, uh, it just kind of shows what you can do when you're determined. I, I was there, I think a week before it reopened and I was I was amazed at how quickly that they were able to go from what I saw to reopen. Cause they, I mean, the place looked like it like a war zone. Um, it just, you know, but there were, um, a huge crew of guys in there working on it. So, you know, you're after reading your story, it made a lot more sense, but it was, it's pretty impressive that they're able to, that they're able to get that all going that quickly. Yeah. You know, and just talking to Bruce and finding out that by the time, you know, just his personal story of, taking a red eye to New York, having meetings, then kind of taking a red eye back the very next day. And by the time he got to Blue Ribbon at about nine o'clock on Wednesday morning, they were already doing the work. They were already doing the demo there and ripping stuff out and seeing what they could save and what they couldn't save. Yeah. So, you know, it's pretty amazing what people can do when they put their minds to it. Man, I can't imagine what a bummer it would be to have your new restaurant just flooded, you know, for four months after it opened or five months after whatever it man, that's got to be terrible. Um, All right. Well, we're going to wrap it for today. I want to do sure bets real quick before we let you guys go. Um, This is our segment where we make a recommendation um, about something that we think you, the audience, might find interesting in any way, shape or form. Um. Jeff, let's start with you. Do you got a sherbet for us today? Yes, I'll make it short and sweet. Uh, my uh, favorite Major League Baseball team, the Cleveland Indians, I, I'm sure this is the worst jinx in the world, but uh, um, they uh, are a very low-budget team, but they are uh, rebounding this year from a couple bad years, and uh, I've, 
I've really enjoyed watching um, watching them play so far this year, and I'm hoping they can uh, continue their Cinderella story. All right, fair enough. Um, Chuck, what about you? Pass. Chuck is pass. Okay. <laughs> uh, should I come back to you, or are you passing for today? Yeah, come back to me. Okay, Doc- <laughs> Doctor Dave, what about you? Wow, I feel like I'm in Family Feud. <laughs> Um, okay, uh, here's what I have for everybody. You know, I'm sure that everybody who listens to this podcast is really into the whole baby carrying, baby wearing thing and wants to know what is the state of the art of baby wearable baby carriers. I've got to recommend the Becco Butterfly 2. It's spelled B-E-C-O, Becco, and it is actually very comfortable. You know, I've this is the third different baby carrier I've tried out. Uh, the Bjorn is pretty nice, but it tends to chafe a little bit in the neck area. <laughs> this is very comfortable. Um, the The baby seems pretty comfortable, too. And uh, I wore this for a total of about four hours yesterday. Part of the time I was trumping around the Venetian at Sheldon's uh, Israeli Independence Day celebration there. Very comfortable for both of us. So Becco Butterfly 2, if you're looking for a nice uh, baby carrier that's also quite stylish. So I'll, I'll ask, could you fit like a, a puppy in there or maybe an iPad or if, if you don't have a baby? This. I was thinking about this. I was, I was thinking if you could, and you know, if you could, it can go forward facing. So yeah, I mean, if you can get the paws in there, you could definitely fit a puppy in there. A small dog, a small dog. How about a small it, keg? Can you fit a keg in there? Probably. I think you could, you could fit anything up to 45 pounds. Oh, okay. see. So. Well, then now Chuck's got his sure bet. <laughs> <laughs> Bingo! <laughs> um, Chuck, I'm coming back to you in a second. I'm going to recommend um, – the, when I was in Las Vegas last time, I was randomly walking around near Encore um, one night, and uh, I noticed that they had there was a uh, Tacos Al Gordo that had opened just north of Encore on Las Vegas Boulevard – Tacos Al Gordo is a great um, Mexican place, like very kind of hole-in-the-wall-esque. It's not a little cart, but you could imagine it being kind of in that vein. Um, really authentic, tasty, simple, uh, inexpensive food. Um, I got a bunch of stuff and uh, loved it. It was fantastic. I would totally recommend it. If you're looking for it, it as you're walking past Encore, you pass um, the little church there. And then the next thing you run into is a small little shopping area. And it's right right there, right on the strip. You cannot miss it. Um, it was really tasty. And I know I, they have other locations in the valley, at least one other, maybe more. Um, but as far as I know... This is new-ish because when I mentioned it on Twitter, people were like, hey, wait, where is that? Um, so uh, Tacos Al Gordo, totally recommend it, um, especially if you like Mexican food. If you, if you hate Mexican food, maybe not so much, but um, it's great. I really enjoyed it. Uh, so, Chuck. I have two. Okay. <laughs> uh, number one is more of just a shout-out. I just wanted to send a shout-out to our friends at Five Handy by Midnight on their 300th show. Oh yeah, which has yeah, been yeah. posted to their site. So definitely go check that out if you haven't. If you're listening to this and you're not listening to them, well, you're an idiot. So, uh, and my other one is uh, going to be uh, Five Guys Hamburgers, ah. uh, which is new to Southern California. Uh, they just opened, I think, three of them around here, and uh, it's a pretty interesting kind of hamburger experience. It's like a loose meat job. 
They just throw a bunch of meat on there and make a burger and people compare it to in and out but I find uh, I don't like in and outs french fries uh, and their burgers seem really kind of antiseptic to me. I'm not a big fan of the of the, that molded patty thing but mm-hmm. these guys you know they make a big kind of messy yummy sort of burger it's one price and you just add on whatever types of sides you want they got grilled onions grilled mushroom lettuce tomato uh onions uh a1 steak sauce i think they have like sriracha and other hot sauces and stuff and it's really good and then the price is really low too surprising it's like five bucks or so for a you know a full-on burger so if you have a five guys by your place i say check it out it's pretty good cool yeah, I've been meaning to try it for a while. I, there's, I mean, I, I think the cl- closest one to me here in Santa Barbara is like Thousand Oaks or something. I think they just opened one in Ventura. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe there's one even closer. Yeah, I'll um, meet you there. Yeah, man. I, I would, I've been hearing you uh, you talk about it on Twitter a little bit, and it makes me hungry every time I see the tweets. And yeah. I, I love me a good, uh, good hamburger. All right, guys. I think that's it for today. Um, thanks to everybody for being here. I'm going to go around the table one more time. You can tell people where they can find you. And uh, Dr. Dave, we'll start with you. Uh, you can find me at ggschwartz.com, hard 3 and plenty of other places if you want to look. <laughs> All right. Chuck Monster, what about you? You can find me at vegastripping.com and on Twitter at Chuck Monster. Excellent. And Mr. Jeff Simpson, last but not least. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Simpson Las Vegas and uh, on Hunter's uh, Two Way Hard Three blog and is at uh, Five Guys in about fifteen minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Um, folks can find me at RateVegas.com where you can check out my iPhone app Vegas Mate on the iTunes App Store. Thanks and have a great weekend or week, I guess. Mm-hmm.